Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can come to your word as a church to receive from you the wisdom and the truth that we need. And God, we ask that uh, this time, Lord, though I am an imperfect person, a sinner, Lord, that you would work through your word in the lives of your people for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. And well, good afternoon. It's good to be with you. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, I'd love to uh, get that opportunity. I want to welcome you, whether you are new here for the first time or you are returning and uh, you're with us every week. It's always a good time to be together. 1997, uh, an Italian movie came out that won three Academy Awards, and it included Best Actor for the starring man Roberto Benigni. It was the first time that a male non-English performance had ever won this award. And I was 11 years old at the time, and I remember hearing about this movie because it was kind of all over the news. Maybe you guys remember if you're, uh, if you can remember back to 1997. Uh, it was a different time. Uh, this movie was a comedy drama called Life is Beautiful. Uh, it was probably about eight or, or nine years later when I finally was able to watch it. And the film is interesting. It tells the story of a Jewish-Italian bookshop owner named Guido who falls in love with a woman named Dora. And uh, she's engaged to be married to someone else, but he steals her away at her wedding. And the first half of the movie is kind of about their love story. And the second half of the movie begins with it being 1944 Nazi Germany has occupied northern Italy where the family lives. And on Josue, their their son's birthday, the family is arrested. And Guido and his son, Josue, they, they are taken and put on a train and sent to a concentration camp. And then the mother comes with them because she doesn't want to be separated from them. Nevertheless, they get separated when they get to camp. And the camp is, of course, a horrible place. Uh, but the movie begins to take on kind of its true form as we see Guido, the father, put on this elaborate ruse, this performance for his son. And basically what he does is he tells his son, who kind of escapes uh, the gas chambers, to stay in hiding. And he says, this is all a big game. You need to hide from the guards. You need to not make any noise. You need to make sure that you're hidden from everything. And if you do, you will win points in this game. And basically what he says is that at the end of it all, The person with the most points will win a real-life tank. They will win a tank. And so Josue is interested in this game. Even though it's hard, even though life is difficult, he does not cry. He does not say he's hungry. He gains these points from his father. And as the prisoners go through life in the movie, we see kind of this glimpse of joy in the way that the father believes, I mean the son believes and follows what his father told him. Now, I want to make clear that this movie is a fictional story, okay? Um, critics throughout the years have said that it makes light of the Holocaust or it's denied the reality of how grim it was, turning a nightmare into a fable. But the reason I bring up the movie this afternoon is for a simple reason. At the very least, for those who enjoyed the movie and for those who hated it, Life is Beautiful forces us to consider the power of our perspective. The power of our perspective Because despite starving and suffering and being separated from Dora, Josue is insulated for some of the worst of what is happening because his perspective is different. While the other prisoners see rightfully persecution and pain and suffering, what he sees in all of these things is a chance for him to win this amazing prize. 
And that brings us to where we are in the book of Ecclesiastes today. We've been studying this book for a while, for months now. And as we approach the end of the book, we are in the second to last section, the second to last week in this study. And what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to have as we think about all the lessons we've learned in this book is a different perspective. You turn with your Bibles to me to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 7. And as you're turning there... Um, I just want to kind of ask the question, what is a perspective? What does it mean to talk about perspective? I think it's it's something that we all understand, we all know in our hearts innately. It's this attitude towards something or our way of regarding something. It's your point of view. You see, it turns out that all this time, Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he's been wanting to give us perspective. He's been writing and challenging us and going through all these difficult things to bring us face-to-face with things we don't want to face so that we can form the right perspective. What is that perspective? If you guys have read the book, you've studied it, you've been with us, you know. It's that everything is vanity. Everything is hevel. If nothing else, you know that's what this book is about. It's talked about all sorts of things. Despair, hard work, pleasure, wisdom, foolishness, money, relationships, and more. But it's talked most about vapor, vanity, hevel. You don't need to understand everything about the book to get this. But if you start to read this book and study it, you will get it better. Most things in life won't really last. We need to know everything is vanity, but somehow that perspective is what we need. Why is he giving this to us? You see, it's not just because it's true, though it is. What we discover today is that the reason Solomon wants us to have the perspective of heaven if you've been with us for the past 11 chapters, the reason he wants us to have this perspective is that if you have this perspective, you can actually be happier. You can be happier. See, it's interesting. We're getting near the end of the book. It turns out that this dangerous, sometimes disturbing, sometimes depressing book of the Bible is actually meant to make us happy. So if you're asking how, well, that's what we're going to see today in the passage that we're reading, Ecclesiastes 11.7 through 12. Eight. You can read it with me, and then we will get into this passage. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things... God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors of the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are also afraid of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. How does the perspective of hevel, of vanity, lead to happiness? Two ways this afternoon as we look towards the end of this book. First, it teaches us to rejoice. And second, it helps us to remember. So just two points this afternoon, a little bit longer, so we're going to get right into it. The perspective of heaven leads to happiness by first teaching us to rejoice. And you're going to see this in the very first verse we read. The preacher of Ecclesiastes begins this book with an exclamation of joy. He says in verse 7 of chapter 11, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And that's kind of a weird, maybe unexpected thing if you've been going through this book. I thought that Ecclesiastes said that life is meaningless. I thought that it's saying that there is vanity everywhere, that life doesn't always make sense, that life under the sun is hard. Well, he does say that. But here's the rub. Just because it is vain doesn't mean it can't be good. This is what verse 7 is saying. Light is sweet. Life under the sun is vanity, but it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. He's telling us something that's not really easy for us to understand at first, but it's important for us to get. It's a statement, I would say, of divine positivity. Yes, life is vanity, but still, to be alive, to be living here now, in this place, in this time, it is meant to be a reason to rejoice. I've always been someone who likes to observe people. I like to uh, look at their lives and see kind of what makes them tick and what's kind of the result of that. And I've been convinced more and more, the older I get and the more people I observed, that there is something common about happy people. Think about your own life. Do you, is there anyone you would say is actually a happy person? If there is, what is it about them? Why are they happy? As I look at the people in my life who I think are happy, what I see is that they are the ones who choose to see life and light as sweet, who think it is pleasant that we get to live here for the tiny moment that we have while we have it. They have this perspective. And the Bible says here in Ecclesiastes that to think this way is not a silly thing. It's actually good and right. Not to deny the reality of how life can be hard, but to know that in spite of that, life can still be sweet. So what's the problem then for us? Because there is actually a problem. If you guys hear what I'm saying, you know that there's a problem. Because even though Solomon says this, the Bible says this, so many of us, even as Christians, are pretty unhappy. I'm not talking about struggling, right? Life is going to be a struggle, of course. But so few of us, especially as Christians, experience and exhibit real joy. Somehow, we have bought into the lie that just because we live east of Eden, we can never be happy. You know, there are varying statistics about how many percentage of people struggle with major depression in a year, anywhere from 10 to 20%. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If I talk about the people I talk to as a pastor, it's much higher than that. It's much higher. And you might not see it, but it is the case. So many people struggle with these major, long seasons of depression and sadness. And it's not to say you won't ever feel this way. But what the Bible says is we still must rejoice. You see, being out of God's garden does not mean you are barred from God's goodness. Not if we are those who know him. So without minimizing the struggle that many of us, many of you may have, I want to say that Solomon is telling you that you can be happier. You do not have to be 
consigned to a life of lifelong sadness and depression. You can be happier in life with the right perspective. You can have less anxiety. You can have less angst and vexation. You can have less self-induced pain as you walk this earth if you have the right perspective. So look at Ecclesiastes 11.8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember the days of darkness will be many. So when he says that, he's talking about the days of death will far outnumber the days of life. All that comes is vanity. Verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. What do we need to notice here? In this three verses, the word rejoice happens twice, and the word vanity happens twice. Now, vanity came up a lot in the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes, but it was kind of off the table um, in the more recent chapters, but it's come back into view here in the end. And so he is intentionally making a point here. He is not denying the fact of vanity, but he is making a connection that somehow everything he said about vanity is connected to rejoicing. The knowledge of our vanity should come hand in hand with an ability to enjoy life. And that's easy to say, but not so easy to do. So let's dive in a little bit more. Solomon says that this perspective of vanity should cause you to rejoice, to be happy. So so what are we missing here? Well, I think there are two additional things that we need to understand that will free us to rejoice. First of those two things, we need to recognize that God commands us to rejoice. You see that in the passage. It's not just that you can enjoy life. It's that you should enjoy life. And I think that can be a freeing thing. Look at the verses. The word rejoice is written along with the other urges of verse 10 as commands. It's written in an imperative state. This is something you need to do. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. And remember the days of death will far outnumber the days he is alive. In your youth, again, a command, rejoice. Let your heart cheer you. Live a life full of passion. That's okay. Enjoy the things God allows you by his grace to enjoy while you can do them. Then remove vexation. Again, a command. Put away pain from your body. The word vexation normally means grief or anger. These are all interesting commands. It's not the kind of commandments that we think are very fair, if we're being honest. Because you can't just command someone to be happy, right? That's what we think. You can't just tell someone... Don't worry, be happy. You can't just command someone to feel something they don't feel. You can't just command someone who's grieving to get rid of their grief. And yet, this is what Solomon does here. This is what the Holy Spirit had him write. And so let me say, he is of course not saying, if you look at these verses, that you should do anything you want to feel good. He's not saying that. He says that you need to remember that there is judgment. The indulgence of every addiction is not going to bring about your joy and happiness. He's already said that will fail. And even in this passage, he says God will bring you into judgment for everything that you do. Remember that. But he's also not saying that if you feel sad, that's always bad. Okay? He's not saying that, that if you feel sad, then that's necessarily a bad thing. That's a lie as well. That I should always feel good. That I should always be completely like chipper and happy about everything. That's a weird person who's like that. There will be times you feel depressed. By all accounts, that is completely normal if not common. But, what is Solomon saying? There are many things in this world that God has made 
that can be done with joy for his glory. And it is your duty, if you are someone who has ears to hear, to joyfully do those things. Of course there's struggle along the way. Of course there is pain. Of course there are things that will happen. But there are many things that God has given for you that you can do for joy and for his glory. Sometimes I think we are not free to rejoice in life because we don't think God wants us to enjoy it. Have you ever believed or told yourself that lie? That God wants me to be unhappy. That God is withholding happiness, the thing that will bring me happiness from me. That is a lie of the devil. God wants us, he commands us to be happy in him. And the perspective of vanity, it fits in perfectly here. He says, don't find that meaning in your legacy. Don't find that meaning in possessions. Don't find that meaning in money or sexual pleasure. You can't because none of those things will last. All those things are passing away as you are. But he does say, enjoy life on this earth and find joy and gladness because of God, because of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 28, if you guys have read through the Pentateuch, you know this happens near the end when they're in the promised land and the new generation is getting ready to kind of settle. Actually, they're getting prepared to go into the promised land. They're not in there yet. Uh, but they've gone through the wilderness and getting ready to go in. And Moses, he's going over a section on curses and blessings. Okay, actually blessings first, then curses. And in this section, he talks about how if you obey the law of God, the people of Israel, that they will be blessed in the land. But if they disobey, they will be cursed. They will ultimately be judged. They will go through a lot of bad things. Then he says in the curses section in Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, he says, all this will happen... Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. You know, sometimes we talk about idolatry at Zoe. Serving other things besides God. But Moses makes an incredible connection. Thousands of years ago, He makes an incredible connection that the reason this happens to us, the reason why we end up in these places trying to drink happiness from broken fountains is because we're not finding joy and happiness in serving the Lord. We don't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of things that he has given to us. It's because your perspective is wrong. See, when the Bible says, do everything without complaining, it's not just saying God is annoyed when you complain. That is one of the most dangerous things you can do for your life, both practically, but especially spiritually. We were meant to enjoy life on God's good earth, to have a good time exploring and stewarding this creation as people made in God's image. And yes, some of that has been marred by sin. Death has come into the world and, and we live in a broken place, but it doesn't mean our ability to enjoy God's goodness and his gifts has been taken away forever. Life can be beautiful. And those who know God, who live in light of who he is, are not people who are destined for eternal sadness. We have been given the ability and responsibility to rejoice. So then let me just ask you, before we move on, how are you doing in this area? If God says rejoice in light of vanity, if he commands it, are you rejoicing? Do you enjoy life? If not, could it be because you are not serving the Lord with joyfulness and gladness 
but serving other idols and, and enemies that cannot satisfy, that will leave you broken under an iron yoke. You know, maybe you are trying to worship God alone, but you don't feel super happy. The question then for us is, are you rejoicing? It's not just a feeling. It's are you choosing to act joyfully towards him? Are you doing your best to be thankful for what you have? Are you willing to change your perspective, even if you can't immediately change your feelings? That's a huge question in this day and age. And one we need to ask, because a lot of people, they don't think it's possible. They think, I can't change my feelings, so I can't change anything. But you can change your perspective. And if you have a godly perspective, it will change your feelings, and it will change your life. Brothers and sisters, you have the perspective that can make you happy. Now, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to happen like that. right? It's not going to be like, well, I went to Zoe Church that Sunday, and I'm just living the happiest life I've ever lived since then. But do you know there are many perspectives that I can guarantee will make you sad? Guarantee, 100%. The perspective that you have been given less than you deserve by God. The perspective that God is withholding, like I said before, something you've earned from you. The perspective that you are good and everyone else is the problem. The perspective that if things had just gone my way, they would be perfect. I can guarantee that if that is your perspective, you will drown in unhappiness. The perspective you need is this. Life is vanity. A lot of those things, they are going to come and they are going to go. But if you are one of God's people... You can be happy because you have God. Do you believe it? And then if you do, do you have faith that you can be happy in him? You guys, if you've read your Bible, there's some interesting things. The Bible says that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. The Bible says that the yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. How can it say these things and also say that you're going to expect hardship and trouble and persecution and pain and all these things? How can it say that? Because those who come to know God and live in light of who he is as king and judge and the only one who is eternal find the secret to a good life. So we have been placed here by God for a moment. He wants us to be holy and happy in that moment. This is a perspective that Hevel can give us We need to recognize God commands it. But secondly, and this is still point one, but secondly, we need to recognize that things won't always be the way they are right now. Okay, things won't always be the way they are right now. This is good for us. This will help us. Verse 10 ends with the preacher saying, you should put away pain and vexation of your life. You should put away these things, which feel very hard to put away, when you know that youth is vanity to you. Very strange, right? Put away pain because you know that your youth is fading and will be gone soon. It's an interesting concept. I think what he's saying is this. If we understood vanity better, we would be able to put away our grief, our anger and anxiety and pain better because we know that none of those things will last forever. It's kind of like that old saying. My mom loves to tell me this. This is not from the Bible, but she would always say, this too shall pass. It is true. It is one of the things that the older you get, the more you know. It is true. This too shall pass. And it turns out that facing and accepting and knowing that can actually increase our enjoyment of life. Um, let me explain, okay? Anyone here grow up going to summer camp? Anybody? No, no one went to summer camp? I got like four people here. All right, if you have gone to something like a summer camp, it doesn't have to be for church. It could be for, you know, anything. Summer camp's a big deal here in North Texas, I know. But um, maybe uh, you guys are missing out on it. But growing up, I would go to summer camp. Um, and if you've ever been to summer camp, I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. Even if you haven't, you might understand from another similar thing. Um, if you go to a week-long camp or two-week camp or whatever, 
uh, what are the best days of summer camp? The most enjoyable days. I would say, I would suggest that the most enjoyable days are almost always the last two days. Okay? It's the last night when you're together with all these friends you made and the day that you leave when there's this bittersweet, like, longing for this to go on for more. And this is doubly true, okay? If you are someone who hates summer camp, the last day is still your favorite. But if you are someone who loved it, the last two days are what you remember. Those days where you just feel so connected. You feel like this is such an enjoyable thing. You finally got to pass that awkwardness. You finally talked to that person you wanted to talk to. You finally feel at home. But you also know it's coming to an end. And knowing it was coming to an end gave you a little bit more incentive, motivation to savor those moments, right? To take them in, to enjoy them. I think in a similar way, this is what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand. Life is crazy. Life is out of control. It is hard. It is rough. It is vanity. Here today, gone tomorrow. But the command is to rejoice in it while you're here. Rejoice in it while you have it. Life under the sun is vanity, but God made life to be good. And if you know it's vanity, you can savor it a little bit more. Sometimes I tell my wife and my kids, and we're in a season that's pretty busy, I tell them, you know, we, we exert ourselves and we do some of the things which can be hard, but we want to enjoy them. We want to have the right perspective because we're pushing ourselves now, but there may come a day, there will come a day when we no longer can. But we won't be able to push ourselves like this. We won't be able to have people over twice a week. We won't be able to go to all these events. There will come a day when that is taken from us. And so we need to savor it now. The command is to rejoice while you can. We take joy, we be thankful, we be happy about the stuff we get to do now because this too shall pass. And this applies to a lot of areas where we find ourselves very practically really struggling to rejoice. What about parenting? Is it easy to rejoice in parenting? I mean, I say that rhetorically. I know it's hard. In the class I gave on parenting a while back, I said something that you may have thought was strange. I said parenting is not about the results. Because the truth is the results are up to God. The results are ultimately in his hand. It doesn't mean we don't have a goal. It doesn't mean we're not trying to do something. But ultimately, what happens is in his hands. But biblical parenting is about being faithful. And while you're trying to be faithful, while you're trying to raise your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, while you're dealing with the fact that they are sinners who need to be disciplined and they also need to be loved and they need to be protected and raised, you should take joy in that. That is not a curse. That is a blessing. And if you seek to honor God, there are gifts that you will be able to enjoy. The peace of a home where parents and children, they know their place. They know that parents need to, to, to love their children and raise them and, and discipline them. And the children know that they need to honor and obey their parents. And again, we're going to struggle. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to always happen the way that we wish it would. But knowing that, there's peace. A place where the, the parents and the children are, are living in harmony, even if they don't always agree. So your kids, they're going to grow up. They will become successful or they won't. Okay? They will grow up and they will have grandchildren or they might not. They will grow up and they will be followers of Jesus or they may turn away. Those things, those big things, they're not ultimately in your hands to control. In fact, they may not even grow up. They may get sick. They might pass away. It's happened to friends. It's happened to family. Those things 
at the end of the day aren't in your hands, but they're also still vanity. They will be forgotten. All is going to be heavy. So then the Bible says, why are you so anxious? Why are you so vexed? Why do you struggle and put yourself in this kind of prison of unfulfilled hopes and expectations and disappointments in the thought that you could obtain something you don't have the power to control? Instead, what are you to do? Put away anxiety. Put away fear. Put away frustration. Rejoice that you get to right now do what God has called you to do. That's hard, but it's the truth. Right now, he has called you to do something, and you can rejoice that you get to do it. You find happiness in the life God has given you in your few short years on earth, because where else are you going to find it? No matter what you do, it's going to be the same. It's what God has given and allowed you to have in the few short years you have on this earth. And if you can truly accept this, you'll be able to enjoy it far better. So enjoy your time with your kids. Exert yourself to make them enjoy it too. You can't force them, but but do it with the right perspective. And while you are being faithful, take care to enjoy the Lord and the gifts he has given. Change your perspective. What are other areas that are hard to rejoice in? Well, just one more by way of application. And again, this might not apply to everyone. It doesn't apply to everyone, but I think it's important. Maybe you're in a season of singleness. And it is a challenge, right? My old pastor, he used to always say to me when I was single and then later when I was married and I was leading the singles group, he would say, don't waste your singleness. Singleness may last for a short season or it may last for a lifetime, but it is always a gift for those who have eyes to see. So then enjoy it, okay? And let me just practically say rejoice in the freedom that you have to help others that you might not have if you had children. Rejoice in the freedom to invest in friends deeply, that, that kind of uh, stuff that might go to a spouse were you married. Rejoice in not having to come home at a certain time for anybody. No one's going to be texting you saying, are you home yet? Rejoice in that. Don't be afraid to do scary things. Don't buy life insurance, right? Rejoice in that. But seriously, live in light of God's judgment in the bounds of his law And then just cherish his good gifts. Now, you might be thinking, I can't do that, right? Whatever, parenting, singleness, whatever I'm dealing with right now, I can't do that. That's just impossible. I know I should be happy in God, but I will be happier if I get that thing. I will be happier if I were married. I will be happier if my kids were a certain way. I will be happier if this situation in life changed. That's how you're thinking. Well, here's what I think Solomon would say. He is not denying that you might feel happier. Were you to get that thing? He's not denying that were you to achieve that goal, you might feel happier. He's not saying that is not true. But the power of Hevel as your perspective is that if you can accept where this is that God has placed you now, you can be happier both then and now. You get it? But you can be happier maybe if you get married in the future. But now you can be happier rejoicing in the Lord. And here's what we need to understand. Unhappiness does not beget happiness without a change in perspective. It never will. It never will in your life. It never has in my life. It never has in the history of humanity. Your unhappiness now will produce instead vexation and pain and sin in your life, exactly the things that you claim you don't want anymore. So then rejoice. It is a command, and it is a grace for those who live in this vain world. Some people like to make a distinction between happiness and joy. Have you heard that? Right? Happiness is temporary. Joy is forever. 
Well, I think that's kind of true. I think it's helpful to think about the difference, but I don't think it's necessarily about the timeline. I think the difference biblically between mere happiness and true joy is where it comes from. Is happiness coming from pleasing myself? Well, joy comes from pleasing God. Joy comes from the Lord and the good gifts he has given. Happiness is from my circumstances. Happiness is from simply my feelings. Joy is from the Lord. Joy is from the goodness of the Lord. Joy is from rejoicing in his gifts. If you struggle in this way, the book of Ecclesiastes actually has a lot to say to help us. If you go back, you, you kind of flip through these pages. What you'll see is he talks about these certain gifts that you can begin to rejoice in right now. The gifts of refreshment, food and drink, relationships, and rest. Little things that all of us, no matter how hard in life we're having it, can sometimes have and can sometimes rejoice in. And if you start small, it will begin to go and to grow big. Start little, and your joy and your rejoicing in the Lord will increase. These are a start. Ultimately, they are reminders that to have joy, our happiness must come from God. And that leads us now to point two. Okay, that was only half the message. I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm learning from Jesse how to handle these long sermons and how to give them out as well. Um, point two, the perspective of Hevel helps us not only to rejoice, but it helps us to remember. Okay, rejoice and remember. Hevel should teach us, should help us to remember what? Well, look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Rejoice, be happy, put away pain and vexation, and do so by remembering your creator in the days of your youth. Now, the word for remember here in Hebrew, it means to call to mind, to think about God, therefore, to have him on your thoughts, okay? It's not necessarily about something in the past. It's just bringing something to mind, like recall something. Um, to remember your creator means to remember that there is a God that, that he is God and we are not, that what is required for real joy is submitting to him. And it is a fact, that's what Hevel has taught us, that really only he truly, eternally matters. We are finite, we are limited, we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but we have a creator who is eternal. Hevel should bring us to joy, but it should also turn us towards God. Okay, that's kind of what's going on here. It should turn us towards God. That's what Solomon wants us to see. And it's really important that the book of Ecclesiastes ends or heads toward the end with this. I think it can really help us. Maybe you struggle with the idea that God wants you to be happy. Uh, if so, you're not alone. I remember when I was growing up in church, there was an older gentleman who was very involved, uh, very faithful in a lot of ways, but he uh, was also kind of an unhappy guy. And... Um, I remember uh, he was sitting at a bench at church one day. And I don't know why I was next to him, because I'm not like his friend, right? He's probably like 40 years older than me. But I was sitting next to him on, on the bench, and he started talking to someone or to whoever was in ear distance. And he said, why do some people say God wants you to be happy? He said, sinners are happy when they are sinning. No, God wants you to be holy. That's what he said, okay? Now, you might hear that, and it sounded kind of right to me in the moment, Okay? God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy, right? Happiness is in sin. Holiness is in God. In fact, I had heard similar things from John MacArthur. God cares more about your holiness than your happiness. And Paul David Tripp, a biblical counselor, God doesn't have a personal happiness agenda for your life. He has a personal holiness agenda for your life. I've heard these things. And so there's some truth there, but we need to unpack it because I think it can kind of get in the way of what Solomon is teaching. You see, these older gentlemen 
What he said, it sounded right, but he was wrong. See, he thought that if God wanted us to be happy, we would not be holy. He thought that holiness and happiness were somehow mutually exclusive. That holiness came from knowing God and happiness came from knowing sin. You ever think that way? You ever feel that way? Don't raise your hand. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. God does care about your holiness more than he cares about your happiness. That is 100% true. But here's the joyous truth. God actually cares about both. God is in the business of both. Sinners are happy. That is always a temporary happiness and pleasure that leads to pain. Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of the treacherous is their ruin. In other translations, the way of the transgressor brings destruction. We need to hear that. The very thing that we pursue in our sin that we think is making us happy leads to deep unhappiness. But the Bible says that when we are holy, when we know God, when we are more like God, then we are happier. True happiness, true rejoicing comes from holiness because holiness is closeness to God. And the happiness that comes from those who draw near to him is a gift for those of us who understand the vanity of our lives and the greatness of our God. So then, remember in the days of your youth, your creator. This is not a totally separate thing, rejoice and remember. To remember your creator is actually what you need. To draw near to God, to to have a relationship with him, to become like him, is what's going to lead to a good life. See, the perspective of vanity, of hevel, it is so good because it causes us to stop looking around, stop spinning our wheels on this earth, and it forces us, sometimes even against our natural desire, to look up. Now, what are the days of your youth? Okay, What are the days of your youth? Is this just for kids? No, but it is for kids too. Um, if you look at this chapter, this section in chapter 12, Solomon uses the word before three times. He uses the word before three times in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6. And this shows us that when he says the days of your youth, he's talking about before certain things happen. It's not about being like a kid per se, but it's about understanding these lessons earlier in life while you have the chance to fully benefit from them. So there are three before statements in this section of chapter 12 that will guide us through the rest of the passage and the rest of the sermon. First, um, well, you know, I'm going to tell them to you all at once. And they are for us to remember the perspective of Hevel, to think about God before you grow up, before you grow old, and before you grow cold. Okay, sorry to put it so bluntly. Before you grow up. Verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So if you're in the ages of 11 to 30 right now, okay, where are you guys at? I'm looking at you. I'm looking for you. If you're in the ages of 11 to 30 right now, this is especially for you. If you're in the ages of 11 to 18, it's really especially for you. Um, but he says to listen up, to remember your creator before you grow up. Now, um, growing up isn't always the same thing as age, right? You guys know that, right? Some people are forced to grow up earlier in life by suffering, by life circumstances, by trials. Uh, but most people have a period in their life that seems pretty idyllic. Uh, for some people, it's longer, some shorter, a time when you feel kind of a naivety about the world where everything seems to be good, right? This is what he's talking about. Before you are forced to grow up, even then, remember your 
creator. The truth is, this time in life, if you are in that time in life where, where things seem to be on the up and up, things seem to be positive, things seem to be exciting and growing and, 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 and just kind of going the way you would have hoped, that will not last forever. Sooner or later, you will be forced to grow up. Speaking to the young people here, you gotta know that. Even though it's hard, even though I know it's, it's almost impossible to say youth is wasted on the young, you gotta know. It will come to an end. You will be forced to grow up in some place or some time. And so the Bible tells us here in the New Testament, we are to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Perhaps you have not suffered much. Perhaps you have not yet been forced to grow up. That's not a bad thing. Praise God for that, that you have lived a life where you've been able to enjoy things, where there's not a lot of pain yet in your life. Even so, remember your Creator now. Think about Him, not when circumstances force you to cry out, but when your blessings can give you ample cause to praise. But one of the biggest wastes of youth is someone who cannot see how good of a blessing it is. Now, why? Why do it now? Why should you take these lessons to heart now? If you're a young person, if you're a youth, why do you need to think about God now while things are good before you are forced to grow up? Well, it's because, as coaches often say, what you practice like today is what you will play like tomorrow. You guys heard that? What you practice like today is what you will play like tomorrow. What you do now while the going is good will greatly affect how you live when the going gets tough. Are you practicing enjoying your life with the bounds God has given? Are you practicing being thankful to God when there are so many things to be thankful for? Are you practicing understanding that He is good and He is the source of every good gift in your life? Do you have the perspective that He is in control and you can joyfully submit to Him? If you grow, if you learn to be thankful now, it will bless your life more than you can know for the rest of your days. When we were in college, um, 18 to 22 years old, uh, sometimes uh, the <clears throat> other men that are young men, boys that I was with, uh, would say this statement. We would say, I'm invincible until God calls us home. And uh, this wasn't really like coming out of great faith, okay? It wasn't like we were super spiritually mature. It was just a statement we said when we were about to do something kind of foolish. It was a statement of youthfulness, but that youthfulness can be harnessed for good. It can be harnessed for the glory of God. Listen, if you're a young person right now, think about your life. Think about the people you know. Do you want to grow up to be a grumpy old man? Someone who can never enjoy life, who is always critical, who is always angry, who is always hurt. Do you want that? I don't think so. Do you want to grow up to be the stereotypical lady who is so bothered by her neighbors coming and going that she cannot even enjoy life in her own home? Do you want that? No. Then remember your creator now in the days of your youth. See his blessings. Enjoy the life he has given. Live for him. Second, the perspective of Hevel should help us to think of God before you grow old. Okay? before you grow up, but also before you grow old. Now, growing up is not the same as growing old. Every person who is grown but still growing kind of knows this. Growing up is about learning how the world works. Growing old is about learning how your body no longer works. This applies to all of us, but if you are in the ages of 30 to 60, this is especially for you. If you are in the ages of 30 to 60, then the following poem in verses 2 to 5 is a poem you can kind of put on your mirror every morning when you wake up. 
Now, Bible scholars, they have interpreted the verses in this section in different ways. From the very literal idea of kind of a storm coming or images describing a funeral when someone passes or even a scene of kind of the slow decay of a town or a way of life. I think that Ecclesiastes is touching on all these things. Uh, There are all sorts of images. But the most accurate way to understand verses 2 to 5 is simply a poetic description, an elegy about growing old. Okay? And I think it is fitting. He describes things falling apart with these metaphors, with these symbols, but there is still a beauty and a gentleness to how he describes it. So let's take a look, okay? And the goal here as we read the poem is to really let it sit with us as we near the end of this book. The second before, starting in verse 2, the poem about growing old. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now, the darkening of a storm is something that's kind of scary, but most commentators see this as reminiscent of the loss of sight. Right? What do people say? The hearing and the vision are the first to go. The loss of sight is something every man and woman will experience. I have gone with my parents to Walmart, and we have spent time buying um, reading glasses for the last 30 years of my life. Okay, they, they are always in need of new glasses. It can be symbolic of the loss of sight. And what about the clouds that return after the rain? Well, it's about cloudiness that forms in the eye. You guys know what that is, the cataract. Now, if I were Dr. Vin, I would spend maybe a few minutes describing to you about cataracts, but I'm not. I don't know anything about eyes. Um, in fact, I skipped my last two years of appointments with him. So sorry, Vin. Um, but the National Eye Institute, it sums it up best with this simple statement. You don't have to be a doctor. It says, cataracts are very common as you get older. That's all it says. Cataracts are very common. In fact, I know a lot of you have had surgery for cataracts who are in an advanced state of life. Following this train of thought, we begin to see how the images that Solomon is using can be seen as images of kind of deterioration, but also as poetic descriptions of the march of time upon our bodies. In the days, verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. It's talking about a house, but he's also talking about a body, right? The arms and the hands, the, the strong parts of your body that you use to defend yourself and to do things. As you get older, they start to tremble. They start to shake. They no longer are as stable as they once were. They're no longer as strong as they once were. The strong men that he talks about are things like your legs and your back, the really strong muscles in your body that you take for granted that keep you stable. When they start to fail, you are no longer upright anymore. Those of you who are familiar with this from experience or education, you know this is 100% scientifically true. The grinders, which could mean the servants in someone's house who would grind uh, the wheat up into grain, right? It would create flour. That's kind of the image. It speaks to your teeth, right? The grinders in your mouth, the teeth, they don't function the way they once did. They might not even be there anymore the older you get. And the dimming of our eyes, which are the windows to the world, Verse 4, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. Verse 4 uses the idea of the doors on the street being shut, which for me invokes kind of an image of a town that's kind of slowly dying. You guys know what I'm talking about. In Texas, you can see this all the time. We love to travel around Texas. A lot of small towns in Texas look exactly the same. They have a small town square. looks just like the town square in McKinney, except there are no people there. There are no shops there. There are no cars there. There are just a lot of boarded up buildings, sidewalks where people used to walk and play. That's the image, but he is talking about growing old. If you think about your own body on the physical side, the shutting of the doors, this fading of sounds very closely parallels 
the way that we lose our hearing. But about six years ago when we moved to Texas, actually after we moved to Texas, about six years ago, I was volunteering at school uh, with um, one of the local elementary schools. And then in the lunchroom, the kids were being so loud. And all of a sudden, my ear just started buzzing like crazy. I was like, what is this, right? And I was kind of disturbed. I was trying to find out information about it. Well, you know what? That buzzing never went away. It's just there. I'm used to it. But people talk a certain way. It always buzzes in my ear. And it's never going to change. It's never going back. Your ears begin to work less well than they once did. Your hearing fades away. It becomes dull. It becomes dud. Dudded. I don't know if that's a word. And despite the loss of alertness in hearing, he says in verse 4, the one who grows old rises up at the sound of a bird. This is, again, 100% true in my experience. Have you ever met an old person who needed an alarm clock? I have not. Not yet. They don't need it. They get up super early. They sleep earlier. They wake earlier. And not only that, in light of what Solomon says here, uh, what scientists actually tell us is that they spend less time in REM sleep. So even though they sleep early and they wake up early, they don't spend a lot of time in deep sleep. They're woken very easily, even though their hearing is bad, by the smallest sound. He says that the daughters of song are brought low. It's a picture of dancing in black and white. Dancing in the past that is replaced now with just shuffling of the feet. Singing replaced with quiet hums. It's a description of once joyful music making softened and shortened and just no longer what it once was. And finally, in verse 5 of this section, a few more images. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. As you grow old, anxiety can easily grip you. You are afraid of what you were not afraid of before. Right? You're afraid of driving at night. You're afraid of going into the city. You can be afraid of driving on the overpass like me. The somewhat justified fear. Uh, my mother had a serious fall recently, and I asked her what happened. And she said that she was following my four-year-old nephew, and he started walking down a hill. And ironically, as she walked behind him, trying to prevent him from falling, she's the one who ended up taking the tumble. The one who is headed towards the end knows these fears, sees them all around. Right? As you get older, you're the age 30 to 60, this is the path before you. The almond tree blossoms. It's a tree with white flowers. That's what you got to need to know. Okay? He's talking about white hair. It's the image of something new, but not necessarily something welcome. Um, I'm there right now uh, with my wife. Every week, there's one of us telling the other one, hey, is that a white hair? And uh, can you pluck it out? And we're getting to the point where I'm like, do we want to be white hair or do we want to be bald? Right, we got to choose which one it's going to be. Every week, something new is white. It's a losing battle. The grasshopper drags itself along. In 2007, Greg Oden was drafted as the number one pick in the NBA. Okay, you guys who are into the basketball world, you know this. And drafted number two was Kevin Durant. And I remember reading an article at that time after the draft where a journalist had watched them walk down the hallway after the draft. He said, it was interesting, Greg Oden, well, no, he said, Kevin Durant walked like a gazelle. He looked like a gazelle when he walked by. He said, Greg Oden looked like an old man. A few years, Kevin Durant had become one of the greatest scorers in the history of the NBA. Greg Oden was retired by age 24. Now, maybe you don't get basketball, but you understand the image. If you understand the idea of a grasshopper dragging itself along instead of hopping, you know, maybe you've injured a bug before. You ever done this? You injure a bug, and it just kind of keeps going, but it's kind of like limping along. The older you get, the less smoothly you walk. 
the less smoothly you move. Now, I won't belabor the point. You understand what he's saying. And then he says, desire fails. You want to do less overall. I said I'm in a stage in life when new white hair is always popping up. I also appear to be at a stage in life, according to my uh, ad uh, kind of choices or whatever they're trying to feed me, it seemed to be in the stage of life where they want me to buy certain drugs to uh, help out with fading desire. Now, simply because I'm in an age bracket. But it's not just sexual. It's also about passion, about appetite. The older you get, the less you enjoy the hobbies of your youth. You guys felt that before? You go back and you're like, I wish I could play a video game and like it, but I can't. I just feel like I'm wasting my life away. I wish I could go enjoy that amusement park the same way I did, but no, I just see how much it costs me. I see how much uh, the sun hurts. Right? Things start to change. Desire fails. And it's again, not just about that. Even just straight physically, the older you get, the outer self, as Paul says, is wasting away. There is less appetite. One of the most common signs of someone who is nearing death in old age is they no longer want to eat or drink. Though they obviously needed to survive, they no longer have the desire. Even apart from that, for my friends in this middle age bracket here, you know that if you watched a video of yourself eating at a buffet when you were 21, you'd be shocked and disturbed by the appetite. There are a bunch of images, all painting for us gently what we know, but we need to hear. You will grow old. And so he says in verse 5, in this section, by saying, what is the reason that all these things happen? <coughs> because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the street, because you are headed towards the end. It is, in one sense, a haunting set of verses, but it is not meant to be harsh. Rather, it is a gentle reminder of everything the preacher has said in this book over and over again. There's no point pretending it won't happen to you. There's no point pretending like you can stop it. You will one day look and act in uncanny ways, just like your parents. So then before you grow old, remember your creator in the days of your youth. In middle age, this is a time when you are very busy. When you are tasked with raising kids and sometimes also caring for parents who are aging. You have to have the thought of God. You have to recall God or you will drown under the self-imposed weight of all these things. In this time of life, things will change. They will change in ways that are more permanent, like my hearing. They will change in ways that you can't go back from. At this stage in life, when your parents get sick, there's a good chance they won't recover. You may start, though you never did before, to have panic attacks, to have back pain, to have relational betrayal, to feel all these burdens on your life. And you're going to say, and I know this as a pastor, what you're going to say to yourself and what you're going to say to the people who want to help you is, I just wish things would go back to normal. Hear it all the time. I wish things would go back to normal. They will not. This is normal. This is hevel. Life east of Eden can and will be hard, but it is still a gift for those who have God. So if you are not a Christian, you do not know God, you have no confidence, you have peace with him, then all I can say is that if you want that, you need him. You need to turn to Christ and put your faith in him. But for those of you who call yourselves sons and daughters of our creator, remember him. Maurice Roberts, he wrote a book <coughs> called The Thought of God. Um, <coughs> it's a classic book. And what he said in this book, which was so helpful, and I'll just read it to you. He says this. It must follow from what has been said that the degree of a Christian's peace of mind depends upon his spiritual ability to interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. To interpose the thought of God between himself and his anxiety. For it is not outward circumstances that can drag us down, 
but our own reaction of despair to them when we fail to perceive the hidden hand of God in everything. You can have peace in midlife. You can. Even when things fall apart. But you need to remember your creator to do it. What about the last group? The third final group? And we're near the end and it'll be shorter. The third final before statement in verse 6 tells us to remember your creator before you grow up, before you grow old, and finally before you grow cold. Okay? Um, it's a blunt way to put it. Maybe a bit too blunt. But here's what he says. Notice the final images of verse 6 to 7. They are images themselves of finality. The previous section was about things fading, going quiet, dulling, dragging. But these verses are about things being broken. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, before the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. These images are final. Things being broken, no longer able to function. Things that once had use, now that use is gone. Death will come to all of us one day. Sooner or later, it can happen when you are young. It could happen when you're in middle age. It will happen when you are old. Death is unavoidable. And so this is for everyone, but perhaps most specifically, and especially for those brothers and sisters here who are in the ages 60 to 90 and better bracket. Verse 7 makes it explicit. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. From dust we came, to dust we will return. But even before that, you can remember your Creator. This is hopeful. It's not the end until it's the end. Even before things are broken in the days of your relative youth, no matter how old you are, your cord has not yet been snapped, you can remember your Creator. You may not be youthful at all by anyone's Measurement. Growing old may be in your rearview mirror, but before you die, before the final breath is gone, you can remember your Creator in the days of your youth. It's never too late. So in your old age, let the truth of heaven give you perspective on the thought of God. Your life, with all of its ups and downs, you look back on it, with all of its twists and turns, with all of the things that have happened to you, if you know Jesus, it has been a story for God's glory. It has been a story of your redemption. It has been a story for your good and for your joy. And you may not have much time left, but you can still be faithful. You know your life is heaven. You know that, that things will pass away, but, but God is eternal. He will establish what he will establish. He can use your efforts as he pleases, and he will use your prayers as he sees fit to do things that far outlast even your vain life. I believe with all my heart that the spiritual health of a church, even our church, is connected with the powerful prayers of a lot of elderly saints who are seeking the Lord on our behalf. And also, lest we forget, you can remember God by enjoying life. Even when things are close to the end, you can enjoy life. Okay, now, easy for me to say, right, I'm like maybe half your age. Easy for me to say, but this is what I think Solomon is saying here. The church I grew up at, there was an old pastor and his wife who started the church. They never had kids. Okay, um, and they were always around. And I remember them well because as they got older, they started to, as most people do, deteriorate. And eventually they were in a, a home where they had to be helped. And we would visit them, me and my parents and some other families. We would visit them about once a month. And I got to know um, the, the husband and wife. And the husband's health went away faster. Eventually he passed away, and it was just the wife who we would visit on these certain weekends. And I remember going to that home. I was about 11 years old, 12. Um, 
And to be honest, I was scared, okay? You guys don't know, you take a kid to, uh, to uh, one of those nursing homes, it's a scary experience for them. It felt very scary. I was there, and, and I remember what made it extra scary was not the fact that people were sick, but was the fact that people were very mean. Right? A lot of these people were very mean to us. Right? When we asked them certain questions, they would sometimes lash out. They would say, like, of course I'm not happy. Why would I be happy? I'm here, no one's visiting me, things like that. Not everyone, but many of them were in this situation. And when we would visit her, though, she was always so incredibly happy. And I was kind of surprised, right? It was kind of a reprieve from my fear to finally see her, to spend time in her room, to be in that place where she was enjoying even this admittedly difficult life. Well, um, she was always thankful to God, excited about what he was doing, and she was always happy to pray for me. About 15 years later, I had lost touch with them. I I was in past college, and Trisha was going to a church, um, and I was dating Trisha. And I went to visit, and I saw her in the church in her wheelchair. She had been in a wheelchair now for probably 20 years. I saw her there, and I became reacquainted with her. I began to talk with her. And um, I was headed towards seminary, and for some reason, I don't remember exactly why, but I knew that things were getting hard physically in her life. And so we decided to visit her in her assisted care. Um, I thought maybe I could minister to her or something, which was kind of foolish, right? I needed her to minister to me. And I went there, and I wondered what 15-plus years of living alone and needing constant care would do. She was in need of care this whole time. When I saw her, she was old and she was frail. She was definitely in a difficult place. But she was still smiling. She was still enjoying life. She was still evangelizing her nurses. All the nurses told me, she tells us every day, we need to believe in Jesus. Telling them about God. She was only months away, I recall, from her finally having her silver cord snapped. It wasn't long after that when I went to her funeral but she was remembering her creator in the days of her youth. It was a powerful lesson on the perspective that vanity can produce in us for our joy and our good. So then read verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. One final time he says what he has said often in this book. He's bringing it to a bookend. Life is vanity. It doesn't mean life isn't good. Hardship will come. Remember, you will grow old. Embrace the fact you will die. But then because of all that, and even better, before all of that, remember your Creator. It is a hopeful, realistic response to that command to rejoice. Nothing will give you the peace and the joy and the righteousness you need other than to live in submission to God, knowing Him, becoming like Him. As Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we'll end here. The end of life is beautiful. Guido, the man and his son, Josue, they continue their game of pretending like the concentration camp is a big competition, despite an incredible number of unbelievable near misses. Right? Things get more and more dangerous. Uh, he almost gets caught hiding in places. And eventually, news comes in that the Allies are starting to win the war. They're headed towards their position at this concentration camp. And um, it gets kind of thrown into disarray. The Nazis are seeking to kind of like uh, shut things down, to run away, to retreat, to get rid of whatever they want to get rid of, which unfortunately includes the prisoners. So they're trying to kill as many prisoners as they can before things happen. And as Guido and his son are, are trying to run in the chaos to find uh, their wife and mother, Dora, a guard spots them from a distance. And Guido, he hides his son. It's a sad scene. They've gotten so far only to be found out in the last moment. He hides Josue in a box. And he says, be perfectly quiet. You are so close to the end. You are so close to the prize. Get those last few points 
win the tank. And he runs towards the soldier, leaving his son behind. And then the scene changes, and the soldier is marching Guido back past the box where his son is hiding. Guido winks to his son. He's still keeping up the act. And then he's shot off screen in an alley. Josue is unaware of his father's death. He stays in the box all night. The next morning, he comes out of the box to an empty camp. There's smoke, there's things burning, but everyone's gone. And to his surprise, he hears this noise, and he turns around, and he sees coming around the curb this big old Sherman tank. And he is ecstatic. Right? He believes he has won the competition. He joins the American GI, and he rides triumphantly away from camp. And as they ride by the column of prisoners who have been freed, he spots his mother, Dora. He runs to see her. He's hugging her. He's kissing her. He's like, I won the competition. And she's just overjoyed, not because of the competition, but because she sees her son again. And as the movie is ending, you hear the voiceover of the adult Josue. He's narrating. And you understand that he's changed. He's not a kid who just thinks this has all been a game, okay? But while he talks about what has happened, this is what he says to end the movie. He says, this is my story. This is the sacrifice my father made. This was his gift to me. See, life is about perspective. The Bible tells us this world is broken. It is sinful. We have rejected God. We have been deserving of his wrath. And because of all this life east of Eden is not paradise. It's heaven. It's vanity of vanities. You will grow old. You will die. You will perish. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So this afternoon, you're wondering, how can I rejoice? Can I really change my perspective? The answer is you can because you have a creator. And that creator, if you are a Christian, is not just your creator, but he is your eternal heavenly father. A father who loves you. A father who has sacrificed his only begotten son for you. A father who has given you your life as a gift. So rejoice and remember this prayer. Father God, we ask you to help us to take these words to heart. Lord, will we seek to know you, to honor you, to love you, to remember you for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.